Well, good morning. I'm Camper Monday, associate pastor here, and I too would like to welcome those of you who are visiting. Uh, we're always glad to have guests with us, so a uh, special welcome to you. Well, we are back this morning in the book of Revelation, uh, back in our sermon series, uh, looking at the seven letters that were written to the seven churches of Asia Minor, which we find in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And what we find in this series of letters is Jesus speaking his love to his churches. Speaking his love to uh, the church of the first century, but also speaking his love to the church of the 21st century. Speaking his love to us here in Williamsburg. As he speaks his love, and as I've been thinking of this theme of love, it occurred to me that there are a lot of songs about love. Whether that is sacred music or secular music, that is often the theme of many of the songs. Now, it reminds me of a particular song that came out back in the early mid-90s. A popular song hit number one on the Billboard charts. Not one that we sing here at church. Uh, but it did win the singer of the rain. Now, I'm thinking that several of you will probably know uh, this musical artist because he began singing in the 70s and toured in the 80s and the 90s and still uh, tours today in the 2000s. And so reminds me a lot of Jeff Black. Uh, but Meatloaf uh, is the music artist that I'm thinking of. Why don't you the particular song that, that comes to my mind is I would do anything for love. The refrain, I would do anything for love. I would do anything for love. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. No, I won't do that. Now, of course, over the years since this song came out, a lot of people have been asking the question, what is the that? What, what was Meatloaf singing about? That. Nobody really knows. I'm not sure if Meatloaf knows. <laughs> but I had some insight on it last weekend because I was in a conversation with a good friend of mine, possibly yours as well, one of our deacons, uh, Brian Hand. When this song came out, uh, he was in college. And it just happened that last weekend we were talking about the dating scene in college. And he was reflecting on the times he was smitten over this young woman, really attractive, and to her decided to ask her out and started dating. Then he discovered that she really liked guys in regular jeans and cowboys. And thought to himself, I won't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, who is writing these letters to his churches. 
And so this first letter to Ephesus, Jesus writes to the church, he commends them for their doctrinal zeal and endurance. You see, they stood for truth and they defended it. But then Jesus rebuked them. He rebuked them for having forsaken their first love. For having forsaken Jesus. For having loved right thinking more than they loved Jesus. And really what we saw a couple of weeks ago in that first letter is that Jesus is really saying to that church, I want your whole heart. And he's saying that to us as well. I want your whole heart, not just your good theology. I want all of you. I want all of your love. And so we're left with the question, leaving Ephesus, is that even possible? And then we get today, second letter to the church this morning, and we see that that love exists. We see that this church will do anything for the love of Jesus. It's important to note that this is one of only two churches and Jesus sends these letters, only one of two that does not receive a rebuke from him, only affirmation and encouragement. And that brings us to our text. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. So let me pray for it before we hear God's words. Our gracious God, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. We thank you for this letter to the church of Smyrna, a letter which is also to the church in Williamsburg. We pray this morning that you would open us to your word, you would open your word to us, you would open our ears to hear and our eyes to see, that you would do a work in us that we might be changed, that we might believe. So hear the word of God from Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, these words of the first and the last, died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are still God is Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. One who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of God. Well, clearly the church at Smyrna is facing pressure. They face poverty, slander, prison, even death. But what keeps them going? Why are they willing and even able to do anything for love? Well, to help us answer that question this morning, I want us to consider three things. The pressure that the church faced, the perspective that the church had, 
needed the news, the power that enabled the church to love Jesus and do anything for them. The pressure, perspective, and power. First, pressure. <coughs> Verses 9 and 10. Let me reread the section of that for I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. The slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Now, note in the section that I just read, it is bookended by the word tribulation. And depending on the translation that you're using, it might have the word affliction. But the Greek word here is. Flipsis. Somebody asked me a question to spell it, so I will spell it for you. Transliterated T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. Now, I point this out because it's an important word for this passage. It's an intense technical word. And its essential meaning is pressure. But more exacting, crushing pressure. You see, for the first century hearer of this word, the picture that it would conjure up for them would be a person uh, would be of a person being tortured to death by being slowly crushed by a great boulder that had been rolled on top of them. That's what they would see. That's what they would see. Jesus says to the church this morning, I know your tribulation. I know your affliction. I know your afflictions, this pressure. The Christian that smirks. Living out their faith under pressure. Now, this pressure is what's experienced when is what's experienced when kingdoms collide. When the kingdom of God comes up against the kingdom of sinful man, <laughs> this pressure is what's experienced whenever there is a clashing of core values. Now, two sources of pressure for the church of Smyrna were this: Roman loyalty and Jewish opposition. Roman loyalty. The city of Smyrna was known for its loyalty to Rome. In fact, the citizens of Smyrna lived by this truth. Rome first in all things. Rome first in all things. Because Rome was their primary identity, their primary allegiance, and to align with anything else above Rome. <laughs> Rome. A temple that had been built to glorify Rome, uh, 
uh, a, a temple that had been built to portray Rome as a goddess to be worshipped. The people were obligated to declare, Caesar is Lord. Well, the Jews weren't exempt from this place of the empire, this religious act of patriotic loyalty to the state. But the Christians were not. Many hostile Jews acted as informants, quarreling against the Christians, turning them over for their disloyal and disobedience to the empire. Of course, many of them being put to death. Tribulation. Again, this pressure is what is experienced in every kingdom's democracy. When the kingdom of God comes up against the kingdom of the world, Pressure is what's experienced when there is a clashing of four values. Okay, a clashing of four values. Where do you experience pressure? A pressure because of the clashing of the values that you hold versus the values that are held by the world. The clashing of two values is worldly values. Our teenagers are all about this. Those of you teens who are following Jesus, you know what peer pressure is. You know the pressure to conform to compromise. And for our college students, it doesn't go away. In fact, maybe it intensifies because you're no longer under the roof of your mom and dad. But now you're on your own, so to speak, and learning to, to live life on your own. And the pressures are there, the pressures to, to compromise, especially the, the areas of success and alcohol what about you parents following Jesus? Seeking to raise your children to follow them in a world of competing values. Those of you in the marketplace seeking to work according to kingdom principles, the worldly principles of the norm, that also get you ahead of you. And what about our retirees? The world says, you're done, have fun, but you have lost your identity. But the kingdom says no. Your work is never taken Your identity is as a beloved of God. You see, we experience this eclipse, this pressure too. When our values clash with the world's values. Because here, as elsewhere in Revelation, there is more than meets the eye. So we need perspective. And that leads to our next point. Perspective. Again, verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have to live. Verse 10. Jesus mentions the devil. What is he doing? See, whenever there is human opposition, there is always spiritual opposition. Always. There is always an invisible component to the crushing pressure. If we had a, a video surveillance of the events that were unfolding in Smyrna, what would we see? Well, we would see Roman police, probably being cheered on by some of the uh, religious folks in the area, some of the uh, 
religious figures, they'd be rounding up Christians and they'd be throwing them into jail. That's what we would see. We'd see nothing else. But Jesus says the devil will throw some of you into jail. Look at this thing. He said, things are not only as they should be. But more than reality, we need to be Jesus tells the church is going to wake up. That picture includes the devil. Spiritual warfare. Something that a lot of us are not comfortable talking about and don't like to think about. But it's real, nonetheless. And don't take it seriously if you take the Bible seriously. Think about what Paul says in Ephesians 6. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil. Now, I understand that some of you knew Richard Halverson, uh, served as chaplain of the U.S. Senate. And once he declared this on the Senate floor No adequate understanding of history can be had without taking into account the fact that behind and around and through history, a personal, diabolical, spiritual force is bent on destroying all good in the altar of Jesus Christ. Dr. Halverson is stating the Apostle Whenever there is human opposition, there is always spiritual opposition manipulation. There is always an invisible component to the pressure pressure. The pressure is experienced. Well, if we were to focus on just the devil, we would be disturbed. We would be undone. You see, there's still another area where we need perspective. Because we've seen the devil in this. But where is God? Where is God in the midst of the pain and suffering? We say about that already. Where is God in the midst of the crushing pressure? Isn't that the real question that, that comes up when life seems unbearable? <laughs> I remember talking to my brother. Uh, he lives in New York City, and I remember talking to him just after 9 11. He said, This is the question everybody is asking. Where is God in New York City? Where was God that morning in September 11th? Understanding this phrase is key to understanding our faith and destruction. The evil one has a purpose for the pressure, but so does Jesus. To understand that purpose from any perspective, you're going to have to look at another Greek word. Now, to be honest with you, it's a little nerdy to bring up two Greek words in one sermon. Not a but I think it'll be helpful, so just bear with me for a moment. Verse 10. The word translated <coughs> is the Greek word Erasmus. Let's read it right now. Transliterated 
But Timothy could take two tea bags and place them before you and say, Careful, which one is good and which one is bad? How would you know? But how can I find out? If Timothy would then give me two mugs with boiling water, and then I could put each tea bag into their respective mugs, let them steep for a few minutes, then I would be able to tell. Because the quality of the tea would be revealed. Which one is good and which one is not so good. The same goes for us. The quality of our hearts is revealed most quickly in the place in our life. We discover who or what we are really trusting in in a bear market, not in a bull market. <clears throat> you know, this week as I, as I was studying this passage, I had my own heart exposed the hot water of this part of the passage. I was reading through it, I was praying over it, I was taking notes, and I was just struggling to figure out where is this going? What is Jesus saying? Why is he saying it? And I finally realized one of the hard places for me is that Jesus doesn't rebuke the church at Smyrna. So I'm thinking, what am I going to say to you guys? <laughs> <laughs> But I figured God had something there, so I continued to pray. And then I remembered uh, what an older friend of mine, wise older friend, said to me. A fellow PCA pastor and former professor at Westminster. He said, Hey, we're going to stop this particular passage. I want you to ask this question What do you not like about this passage? What gets under your skin? I began to think about it. And I realized that my heart was all the way back at Ephesus, not here this morning. I realized that I often love getting it right more than I actually love Jesus. I think that's where a lot of us are very dependent on the church. It's a hard realization. But remember the good news. Remember, through Parastus, God's purpose is not only to reveal and expose what is in our hearts, He is the great physician reaching down in our hearts to refine and to transform. That's tremendous. And so also, this test, the test for the church is that to refine their hearts, their love for Jesus, their trust in Him. You know Romans 8, Paul reminds us that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Not that all things are good, but that God uses all things for good. Further, Paul tells us that God's purpose is to conform us to the image of the Son, to the image of Jesus, to grow our faith, to grow our trust, to refine our hearts. In verse 10, when Jesus said to the church, do not fear. It is a call to trust Him in the most difficult of circumstances. It is a call to trust Him in the midst of things that you don't understand. That you don't want. It's good. It's faithful. But we need perspective. We need to believe that He holds all things together and that He is working all things together for good. Do you believe that? 
I mean, that's crazy. I was having exposed in my home. I would have to answer, no, I'm really struggling to believe this, Jesus. Jesus is ultimately working the very best for you. As the book of Revelation constantly reveals, things are not only as they seem. And so we must trust the one who sees all things and works all things together for good. Okay, let me tell you about a, a woman who held on to this truth. Single woman, in her mid-30s, deeply desired to be married. In fact, she had just watched her younger sister walk down the aisle. Once again, she's a bridesmaid, not a bride. She was really wrestling with this in her life. She was praying about it, going through the scriptures, and she journaled, and she wrote this. This is only an excerpt from, a, from an article she wrote. It is a cosmic impossibility that anything could be better for me right now than being single. I am single because God is so abundantly good to me. Because this is the best for me right now. I may need someone to walk down the aisle in the next couple of years because God is so good to me. I may have another day in my life. My heavenly Father is sovereign, and He loves me, and He has the very best for me. Now, so that you don't over-spiritualize this woman or pick her out of touch with reality, this is how she concluded her reflections. Nevertheless, I am claiming in my theme verse, if any man will come after me, let me. <laughs> okay, back to the point. Clearly, this woman trusts the one, trusts the one who sees all things and works all things together for good. She trusts that Jesus is at work even in the most difficult places in her life. In Romans 8, Paul also declares, I consider that our present suffering is not worth comparing. Not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Not worth comparing to the crown of life that will one day be ours. Now don't get me wrong. I know that life is hard. Life in this fallen world is difficult. The pain and the pressure are real. Jesus knows that. That's why he is writing to this church to encourage them to speak into their lives, and we'll refer to that in this moment. But God is using even the most bitter and nauseating trials in your life for something good in you. We must keep that perspective. Yeah, I heard it put this way. It's a little bit like banana bread. Okay? Some of you really like banana bread. Now, I don't know why we call it bread, but it's really cake. Maybe that's just But in the end, it's something sweet and delicious. But think for a moment, if you were to take the individual ingredients of banana, just take them by themselves, they are either bitter or nauseating. You take salt by itself, bitter. Baking powder, bitter. Raw eggs in there? Maybe that's getting a little nauseating for me. But let's call it rotting And so if that is all that you were to see were those individual 
bitter and nauseating. Yeah, you're not going to like banana bread anymore. <laughs> but if that's all you see, the, 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 the bitter and nauseating, those ingredients, you want nothing to do. You can't even see what's coming. But when it when in the hands of a steel cook, of a steel chef, something is put together that is beautiful and wonderful and delicious. God has the very best for us. He is preparing us for eternity. A life that is beyond our wildest dreams. At the end of Revelation chapter 21 and 22, we see that one day all sad things will come up. This is the perspective of this This is the perspective that has the church is looking at Jesus and loving them no matter what. They had their eyes on the prize, and that prize was Jesus. Christians at Smyrna were willing to do anything, anything for them, anything for Jesus. But there's another question about it. How are they able to do that? Now they start finding power. Power. You see, the church is swerving through power. Now we're not talking about the impersonal power of the Jedi, of course, in the Star Wars series. We're talking about the church is swerving through the personal, intimate, indwelling power of Jesus. They knew the personal. Jesus, not only for them, not only baking something wonderful for them, but also with them. In the oven with them. In the hot water with them. Walking through the fiery furnace that ultimately they might not be born. Now remember, the, the major practical point of this unveiling, the, the unseen reality that Jesus is showing John, and John, and the churches in Asia Minor, and we, here today, we need to have reinforced in this. In the words of one theologian in reference back to chapter 1. When John first turned to see the voice, he saw seven folks in the landscape. And in the middle, one like a son of man. In the middle, the seven lampstands represent the seven churches. In the middle, the risen, living, glorified, reigning Jesus stands in the middle of his churches. Jesus is with us. And not only that, but Jesus is speaking to us. And as John reported in an earlier writing of his, his gospel, those who hear the voice of the Son of God will live. The life speaks into us. Enables us to embrace the whole life of this world. You see, ultimately, we are able to do anything we want, anything for Jesus. Because Jesus did everything for us. He bore our sins on the cross, carrying the whole weight of our sin and the punishment due it. Absorbing the wrath of God that we would not have to. That through faith in Him, our sins might be forgiven. That we might be set free. That we might have a right relationship with God. That we might be able to look forward 
Yes, Jesus opened this letter to church this morning. He is the one who died and came to life. But his death could not hold him down. He is the first and the last, the one who bookends all things, the one who bookends all creation, who bookends your life from beginning to end through eternity, who holds all things together. So now, by his indwelling spirit, he is working his perfect love deeper and deeper and deeper into our hearts, revealing and refining that we might look to him and keep the faith and refreshing. So, with the church at Smyrna, with the church at Smyrna, let's encourage one another. Let's pray for one another. Let's be in God's word together and exhort one another that together we might fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before us, who for us, endured the cross, that we might have life in him. Now I invite you to stand together. We look at Jesus and see our closest.